we're just so thankful. We think of uh, the gift you've given uh, Jacob and Christina. And it's just an obvious gift. It's obvious not only because of how good it is, that, and I'm not bragging on them, but bragging to you, Lord, about you, but how easy and natural it is for them to worship you and to write and sing songs. We also know, Lord, that everyone who has a gift, all of us, in order for that gift to really be fruitful, we have to, it has to be tried and tested and strengthened through your Holy Spirit, and not just naturally we just do it. So we know that even for young people like them, there are fires they've gone through and go through on their journey, seeking to glorify you through worship. And we pray for them, that you would bless their journey and protect them and guide them and teach them, even as they're seeking to encourage others through music. We pray for those who've been very sick among us, thinking clearly of Jana Cargan right now, and thinking of, uh, sorry, um, Karen Bose and KT and um, Heather, and there's others who, and Jordan, and then there's others that I can't think of right now, names, but we pray you would just meet with each of one of them and strengthen them and bless them and be their strength, their help, and, and heal those that you would heal. And Lord, we think of the VBS and how so many gave so much energy and so much time and so much love and we pray you bless them. We also pray for those they poured that love out upon, particularly those who were new to us. We don't need them to come to our church, but they need you to be their strength and their hope. And we pray that we can bless and encourage them more, and that those who maybe it was their week that they truly became Christians, truly were saved, or parents even that were watching, that you would just pour out your spirit on them and not let them go but draw them close. And now draw us close to you, Lord. we got no place to go but to the words of eternal life that come from your word and from your spirit. And so we're here to be strengthened in our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We're in Genesis 20, 22, and it really is 1 through 14, not 13. I gave her the wrong address there cut it off a, a verse short of Jehovah Jireh, which is just sinful, <laughs> terrible of me. But at any rate, um, in Genesis 22, we're, we're going to study the story of Abraham taking Isaac up to the mountain. It's a story you're, I'm sure, familiar with. Uh, we haven't done the book of Genesis directly for quite a few years here. I think in our travels through the scriptures, we'll be starting a new book again uh, August, the first week of August, but with uh, I didn't want to start a book and then interrupt it yet. So here we are, Genesis 22. Uh, as I mentioned to you that my friend Scott and I, when we were in Africa last time, decided while we were there on the fly to do every study of a two-day, eight-session uh, studies on the cross. So we not only did the study on why the cross that I gave, but then we each took different sections of Scripture and shared about the cross and how fruitful and important it was and is. And uh, there's a picture of the cross right here before us in Genesis 22. Now the amazing thing, we'll just read it first, 1 through 14, all the way through. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go up yonder. He was from the south. We'll go up yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound his son Isaac, Isaac his son, excuse me, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And of course, as you probably know, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. So, Abraham, the amazing thing about Abraham, he's called the father of the faith. He's the father of faith of Judaism and Christianity. And it's said of Islam as well. But for biblical clarity, while the Jew and the Christian agree that the content of the Old Testament is clear, and history agrees, and research agrees, and things like the um, Dead Sea Scrolls and all the parchments that we have from ancient times, of which we have more in the Bible, Old Testament and New, than any other book in the world, Uh, agree upon the content of the Old Testament, though the Jew and the Christian don't agree on its interpretation, right, or its fulfillment, meaning the Jews don't receive the promise that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. Are you with me? So both Jew and Christian look at the same Old Testament exactly the same. This is what it is. When it's said that the three great religions... Um, come from Abraham, including Islam. And this is not because, you know, I don't, it's going to sound the way it sounds. <laughs> okay. Islam does not take the Old Testament as it's written, but changes a pretty dramatic thing as well as their interpretation. And the pretty dramatic thing is instead of Isaac, they say it was Ishmael that Abraham offered. So you may not know that. So, um, 
at any rate, Abraham and his story of redemption in the Bible is huge. It is the hugestest of hugestestises. It's big. It's the story. It's the place where God takes the story of redemption of mankind. Ultimately, God's unique call and personal work in and through Abraham brings us to Jesus Christ, the author of our salvation, the completer of our faith, to all mankind. Why don't you say amen to that? Good, yeah. It's good to sometimes just do that. So God's promise to Abe is his promise to no one else, so that through him we are children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we're children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, but we're also called the children of Abraham because we have the faith of Abraham working through us. You didn't, you didn't know you had that much faith, did you? <laughs> so Abraham, you know, all mankind through faith in Christ, through Abraham. And Abraham, uh, you know, he says to, God says to him, you will have a miraculous birth of a son in your old age. And indeed he did. Not Ishmael. Ishmael was the work of his human body, his, his mental capacity, and his wife's decision-making. It was human and flesh. And he had a son named Ishmael with Hagar, his hand, her handmaiden. And that was not what God's talking about. You're going to have a miraculous birth of a son of a promise, not of human ability, but of promise that's going to bless all mankind. All humans are going to be blessed through the birth of your son. And now God seemingly calls Abraham to actually kill his son um, and offer him as a burnt offering after killing him. Folks, it's really simple to me because I've read through the Bible so much and because you take the whole of Scripture versus somebody just opening the Bible and reading this and saying, say, what? So this is the God you worship? Well, listen, uh, <laughs> this is not a precedent for deranged people who kill their children because God told them to or kill people because they heard a voice from heaven and God said, kill these people. and offer. You've heard about that, right? And this is not a precedent for that, and the proof is very simple. First of all, did God actually have Abraham kill his son? No, never happened. It ha- well, it did happen in Abraham's mind and heart. But, and second, God clarifies. Now, be, really catch this with me. God clarifies through the entire Old Testament that Israel, he tells them in Deuteronomy... And several places subsequent to Deuteronomy, he says, you are never to offer your children as a burnt offering. Ever. You're not to kill your children and offer them. That's why I'm judging these nations that we're going into. This is one of the things they're doing. Are you with me? You're never, ever, ever to do... And he repeats himself. Okay, so it's clear from the Old Testament, God would never have anyone else do what Abraham even almost did, if you want to say that. And the New Testament is equally clear, and more so, that Jesus is the true offering that was being pictured here, that actually was offered. And God says animals, even the animal sacrifices, are not to continue. Are you following that? 
the animal sacrifices. So not only are you not kill. I mean, just if you want clarity, you're not to kill children for me. You're not even to kill animals anymore for me. You can kill them to eat. This is not a, <laughs> a vegan report. This is, this is, which is fine, but it's not biblical that you tell people they can't eat meat. It's, yes, you can eat meat, but you're not to kill animals as sacrifices anymore either. So there's no issue there unless, unless you're lifting verses off. Because, hey, listen, if, here's the deal. If people want an excuse to disclaim the Bible because it's got bizarre stories, they can certainly use this one and many others. If people want an excuse and a reason to say, I'll disclaim the Bible for its crazy, wild, bizarre stories, they can do that. However, the integrity of study dictates that you take the whole of Scripture with the context from all of Scripture in order to view what's being said and done properly. Does that make sense to you? I mean, anybody could take a soundbite of me saying, um, a guy said to me, your, your, your daughter Beth is worthless, which nobody has said to me. Somebody could take my quote, my daughter Beth, he said his daughter Beth is worthless. Is that truth? That's a lie. That isn't what I said, but it's part of what I said. You get what I'm saying? So this is uh, Satan loves to take part of what God said without the context. So I, I want you to have that in your mind when you read the Old Testament. When you read a story you don't understand, ask the Lord and continue to read to get it. Read before it, read after it, read the whole Bible. Is that a little bit of work? Sure. You need to do it all in one day, too. All right. <laughs> so in the narrative... Notice the language of faith that God speaks in. Take your only son. We've covered it briefly. Yet he had a son named Ishmael, but that was not the son of promise. That was not the son of covenant. Abraham is being spoken to by God within his covenant relationship. And in that covenant relationship, he has one son, a son of promise. God made a covenant with Ishmael, by the way, but that's not this covenant with Abraham of promise, of salvation through his son. God did not promise that flesh. So it was, a, it was a promise, take your only son. That sounds somewhat familiar, doesn't it? And then it, it, the word God did test Abraham, and in the old King James, it's the word tempt. But what, what we have is one word that's used in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, there are other words for it, but in many cases, the word test as 20 times could be translated, it was translated prove, 12 times tempt, and the context dictates. So the obvious context here is prove by a test. God proves Abraham's faith. That's the test. It's not a tempt to make him sin, it's a test to prove his faith. Take your only son, whom you love. Do you know when the first time the word love is used in the Old Testament is? Right here. There is a principle in the scriptures. I don't know that you could say for every single case you'll find all the information this way, but it's very consistent, it's very common, that the first time a, a word is used, the deepest meaning is derived from the first use as you go through the rest of scripture. Principle of first use. 
And the first use of the word love isn't Adam loved Eve. It isn't Romeo loved Juliet. <laughs> it isn't I love ice cream or pizza. You get what I'm, what I'm saying there is we use words and change their meaning. We give it different inflection and different thought and different uh, presence, power. The first use of the word love. Take your only son whom you love. So God took his son, the love of a father for his promised son. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Would that be the description of this love that God is speaking to Abraham? Certainly Abraham loves his son. Certainly people loved their children before this moment. But what God is doing through words and language and scripture and narrative story is telling us what real love really begins at, where it really comes from. And it comes, for as the New Testament makes clear, God is love. God is love. Well, how do I know that for sure? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, not as Abraham, but he actually gave him as sacrifice. Well, the love of the father for his promised son and, and offer him on the mountain that I will show you. And of course, as we know from our history and from the rest of Scripture, we know that this mountain is in the vicinity of Jerusalem and obviously would be uh, uh, in the area where Jesus is crucified. Perhaps, it's thought, the very same spot. And he rose early. This is the killer here. This is the kicker here. Abraham rose early in the morning. God tells him something that's the most extreme thing you can tell a person even if you're God. Take your son, whom I promised you, that all the earth would be blessed through him, and you'd be a father of many nations through him, and all of this, sands of the sea, stars. Take him and offer him as a burnt offering sacrifice. And it says, early the next morning, immediately at the soonest possible moment, Abraham goes to obey God. Doesn't that sound like you and me? <laughs> Does it not? I can't claim it. I don't know about you. But I can't claim that at the earliest possible moment that God tells me a difficult thing, I do it. I have sometimes. Sometimes the burning in your brain to think it over, just you just know you're going to really traumatize over this, so you just go do it now to get it done. But other times, don't we kind of hedge? Here's the thing. Delay, it's been said. I didn't coin the phrase. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Would you think about that? Delayed obedience is disobedience. You know, sometimes God says, I'm going to do this with you, and I'm giving you a picture of what I'm going to do. We're not talking about that. We're talking about when you know that God is speaking to you and says, For however it comes to you, this is what I want you to do now now and delayed obedience could very well be then disobedience now just in the opposite frame Abraham acts immediately 
Uh, you, you see, we talked about this. It's so easy. Uh, uh, Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright will guide them. And, you know, uh, integrity is, with God, is that it's easy to ask directions for God, from God to decide if you're going to follow where he tells you to go. God, show me what you want me to do. And in the back of your mind, you can be saying, and I'll decide whether I want to do it. God, show us if you want us to go to Boston or not. But we're going to Boston either way. (laughs) Show me if you want me to go do this, but I'm not so sure I'm going to do it even if you show it to me clearly. Yeah, that, that's ask direction to decide if you're going to follow God. That's not integrity. And, and, and when you have that pattern in your life that you're asking God for direction to decide if you're going to follow it, let me assure us of something, is you're not going to hear much from the Lord. What he's going to talk to you about is your decision-making process. Not about, oh, okay, I'll tell you. God doesn't really waste words and energy. And so decision to follow God already made is, is the decision that says, I'm going, Lord, which way do I go? Are you with me? That's uh, it's pretty strong. But it's also the way for Rick and everybody else to grow in Christ, to be fruitful in life, to have less confusion See, difficulty is going to come no matter what. But it's a lot worse when you have a double difficulty or a triple trial (laughs) because you aren't really sure you're really willing to do what God wants you to do, and then you're in the middle of stuff, and then you're fighting two battles at once, the thing God wants you to do and whether you're even going to go through with it and do it. And you get all confused and befuddled. But when you're committed to his way, Whatever it takes. What would it take to cause us to do that? Faith. Actually believing that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Remember that little saying? Well, his wonderful plan for my life may not be looking wonderful to me. But I'm here for him. I'm on my way to heaven. And my goal is to honor and please him. And that, what I just said, for, for a Christian walking uprightly, though we, we go up and down, we stumble, but that goal and that purpose never, ever, 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 ever changes. You never have to wonder about what your purpose in life is. You may wonder about what, which way should I go, Lord? And how should I approach this specifically? Of course. But your purpose for, take a breath. Why did I take that breath? Because I'm here to bring glory to God. And that's never going to change. Well, today your purpose is different. No, today your direction may be different, but your purpose remains consistent. And it's why I've said often when tragedy happens, and we've had so many so consistently lately, but the first one that seemed to come in that huge wave, actually it was really, I think it was before 9-11, I think it was for me Columbine. Wasn't that previous to 9-11? Yeah. 
And I thought, what's it going to take to get people, what, what, what is it going to take to get us motivated to seek God, the body of Christ? You know, you would think 14 kids dying from a shooting before those were really common would be enough. You would think this would be enough, that would be enough. 9-11, Sandy Hook would be enough. Terrorism would be enough. This or that would be enough. You know, uh, to suddenly get direction. I understand that we refocus when we hit a hard spot and we have to stop and refocus. We remember the Lord through communion and we stop and refocus, so there is that good part. But it's kind of like if we constantly need some major event to happen in order to get refocused, in order to decide what our purpose is on earth, we're already, it means we've been missing it the whole time. Are you with me? We've been missing it. That purpose has always existed for the Christian before any tragedies happened. Because tragedies happen every day, every time somebody dies without Christ. Tragedies happen every time a kid cuts themselves and goes through great trauma or people get hooked on drugs. Tragedies happening. Our goal, our purpose has always been the same. I find that like a rock. That's Jesus under my feet. That's stability for my life. I have enough confusion even trying to do this. (laughs) I don't need to add any more confusion. How about you? Lord, which way would you have me go? I've already decided I'm going to follow. God, help us, because I don't know that any of us do that perfectly. So we see the vivid picture. It says, he saw a vivid, vivid picture. Abraham saw the place afar off. Three days journey, of course, three days in the grave. But saw afar off. Isn't that the father and the son? It says in in the scriptures that Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. God saw that place afar off. Abraham and Isaac saw the place afar off. And Abraham and Isaac went alone. There was two young men with them, kind of pictures the two thieves on the cross. But yet Jesus went alone, yet I am not alone, but my Father is with me. And God, 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, this is somewhat challenging because you know that Jesus said, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced that becoming of sin. He carried the weight. Did you notice that the wood was on Isaac's back? The father placed the wood. What did Jesus carry? He carried the crossbar to his cross up to where he was crucified. I don't think I need to elaborate for long periods of time on each of these things. They're just like they're coming up and slapping us in the face with truth and clarity. And from the moment God spoke, well, let me back up just one minute. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What I began to say was Jesus did say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he experienced that separation and that darkness and that weight of becoming sin for us. And so in that moment, he carried that weight and carried that separation and that pain. And it wasn't just for a moment. It's an eternal work he did, and we just don't know how to explain it. But God was in Christ. God didn't just send his son like, you go do what I won't do myself. God says, you go do, and let me through you do it, so that when you suffer, I suffer. And, and any parent that loves their kid would much rather take a bullet or push them out of the way of a, uh, of a car and get hit, or whatever it takes to save your children, wouldn't you? 
Isn't that who we are? Isn't that a natural parental thing? Who gave parents the natural desire to save their kids and protect them? Who gave us that? So God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And then the wording here, the lad and I will go forward. Well, the word lad is young man. It's more of a, a carryover of a King James word, kind of like yonder. Listen, what, what history tells us, what adding, like, like adding from going backwards from the future and coming forward it, with using the timing and the things that we know in Scripture is that Isaac was probably between 17 and 33 years old, somewhere in there is how old Isaac was. People will try to say he was 33 because Jesus was, but we don't know that. That's, that would be cool, but it's not provable. What is provable is that Isaac wasn't a little 11-year-old boy. He was a big, strong young man. The wood was carried on his back. And uh, in Abraham's mind, from the moment God spoke, Isaac was dead and risen. Because on the front of your bulletin, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, And Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. God received Isaac back from the dead. Because in his mind, he had already killed him when he rose up early that morning. When God spoke, it's done which is kind of incredible, isn't it? So the lad, the young man that he was, means that he had to be a willing participant. You know, they, the, 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 we, the lad and I will go and worship, which is to honor, to kiss, to sacrifice, to bow down. And when Isaac asks, I believe he's, he gets what's going on. Father, I got the wood, we got the fire. I see the knife in your hand. <laughs> you know, it's like glimmering. Uh, but where's the sacrifice? Where's the animal? Where's the, 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 the lamb? Uh, God will provide himself. Elohim ra'ah se'olah. The Lord will provide himself is the actual Hebrew language. Not even for himself. It's really, you can take, it can go both ways with translation, but it, the Lord will provide himself is how we understand that because that's exactly what happened. But, the son had to be willing. If Isaac's not willing, Abraham is, if Isaac's 17, Abraham's 117. If Isaac's 25, Abraham's 125. Now, he might have been pretty spry for his age. But he wasn't going to take down an unwilling 17 to 25 to 33-year-old young man, tie him up, you know. That wasn't going to happen unless the son is willing and they're in partnership and unity. And that's exactly what happened. And God did provide himself. It's interesting that when he says, Abraham, Abraham, he says his name twice. I like that. I like that. God is making sure that Abraham hears him. And I like it that Abraham is listening. I like it in the story and find it to be helpful is that even though God gave him very clear direction, you also have to be ready to move in a new direction as you're traveling. Once you know, when God told me to do this. That's all. No, 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 no. You don't want to do that. God told me to do this until He tells me different. God told me to do this. 
until he tells me different. And we can go through a lot of scriptures to try to figure out how we know that and all that. We're not going to take the time right now. It's a pretty big subject. But there are ways to discern that and to sense the Lord. It has to do with having an ongoing, current relationship with God. You know, I find it really easy to base everything on what God's already showed me. I just do. First of all, probably because it's lazy. And secondly, because it's easy. But it's not easy. You might miss something. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Lord. <laughs> by the way, in verses 16 and 17, God talks about, in surely by two things, I'll bless you, I'll blessing, I'll bless you, and multiplying, I'll multiply you. And I, I kind of personally, just in this reading, this time through, kind of tend to link the Abraham, Abraham, blessing, and multiplying. And there's not much further you can go with that unless you want to make up a doctrine. But I, I mean, it is true that God said those words to him. And said his name twice, two immutable things, it's impossible for God to lie. Finally, God says, don't lay your hand on your son, don't kill him, don't do anything to him. For now I know, now I know that you will fear, that you fear God, have a holy reverence and a hatred of evil. You fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. Now I know so, like, I wonder if God was, like, wringing his hands. What's going to happen? Is Abraham going to do this? Well, we know that's not true. How do I prove that we know it's not true? Because in chapter 19, when God is sending, go on his way and tells Abraham, you're going to have a son, Sarah's going to give a birth to a child. When the three men come up, it's uh, two angels and the Lord and the appearance of men traveling. And, uh, and he, he pronounces that Sarah will have a son, and she laughs about it behind in the tent. He says, yeah, that's good. We'll call his name Isaac, which is laughter, because she laughed. And it was really great, because Sarah goes, no, I didn't. <laughs> I mean, how do these guys know anything about the story of Abraham? And then they know this is something unique and special. And, and then, you know, the first response, no, I didn't of Sarah just shows our humanity so clearly. And there's many cases in the Bible where God speaks directly to people or angels speak to people and they argue with them. So you, know, you might think if an angel appeared to you, you'd say, yes, sir, no, sir, what, sir, and fall on your face and that's all you'd do. You never know. You might argue with them. <laughs> and this is the Lord speaking. Uh, because she laughed. I, I didn't laugh. Peeks her head around. I didn't laugh <laughs> around the tent. Yeah, you laughed. Okay. Oh, yeah, I laughed. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, I got, now I know. Well, then that wasn't really a story that we're getting to. The story we're getting to is the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing I'm going to do, going to Sodom and Gomorrah? Since, I, since he's going to become a great nation. Hello? Since he's going to become, not might become, we'll have to test him and see, since he's going to become a great nation and to teach his children to do the things concerning me. That's only one place. There's many other places we can go to show God's immutability. He can't change him from who he is. His omnipotence, all-knowing, all-power. Omniscience is all-knowing. Um, omnipotence is all-power. God knows everything. God knew. When he says, now I know. 
What's he really saying? Kind of like when he said to Moses, step aside and let me destroy this people. I'll make of you a great nation. What do you say, Moses? Looking for Moses to speak up and intercede. God knows he's not going to do that. You know, you're a parent. You've said things to your kid to get their attention. I'm not talking about lying to them, but drawing them out. Abraham, now I know, means I knew. History will show. But right now, the person that needs to know that your faith, your faith, Abraham, is more precious than gold that perishes, even though it be tried in the fire. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Knowing that the trying of our faith is, is, is much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried in the fire. Uh, I already said the verse, so I'll just stick with that. Gold. I'm proving to you, Abraham, that you're gold, but more than gold. See, gold is considered a what kind of metal? Yeah, one of the most precious metals. It's what we value all our money off of, or we used to. And you'll hear people on the TV, you know, you need to buy gold, because when all these other paper money and all this other stuff falls apart, you'll be rich, you'll have your stuff, and be that as it may or may not, you got to have gold. It's the real currency of money. It's the real valuable, precious metal. And it has great value in earthly economy. But one problem with gold is while it was purified by fire and you get the dross out and all that, that's only so much fire. When the fire gets hot enough, gold disappears. The elements will melt, Peter goes on to say a little bit later in his second book. Chapter 3, all the elements will melt with fervent heat. So there's things that will melt under pressure and under heat. And there's things that won't. There's things that are temporary and there's things that are eternal. There's things that have no lasting value. Gold has no lasting value value, no matter what the commercials tell you, because the day will come. Yeah, the streets of heaven will be paved with gold of the new Jerusalem, paved with gold. So did you ever spit on the pavement out there? Did you ever wipe mud off your shoe on the pavement? Why? Because it's just asphalt. Whatever the, whatever the streets are made of isn't something you go, oh, don't touch the street. It's so precious. <laughs> don't get it dirty. That's how common gold will be in the eternal kingdom. It'll just be streets. But gold is not any other than that picture of it, you know, the, 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 the jewels and all of that. It doesn't have eternal value, not in the sense of that we save it and put, put all our hope in it. Faith in Christ, on the other hand, has eternal value. And finally, the thing about testing. In Houston... Gail and I had the privilege. Has anybody visited the Space Center there, the Houston Lyndon Johnson Space Center? Years ago, we got to visit, and I've shown a picture here a few years ago. They have a chamber, eight-foot thick walls, a door that's 40-foot in diameter round on a hinge that's gigantic. It's eight-foot thick, and a lady, a lady Julie size, can push that door open and close. It's so perfectly balanced. 
and they have giant tanks of nit liquid nitrogen out there. And what they do in that chamber, they put space shuttle stuff in it and other kinds of equipment when they were testing space shuttles and other kinds of rockets with people on them or even without for just, they'd put it in and they'd suck all the air out till there's only like two or three molecules of air bouncing around in there. It was a vacuum. That's why you have eight-foot-thick walls because if you sucked it out of a three-inch wall, it would just collapse with no air inside of it. And so eight-foot-thick walls of super titanium. And then they suck all the air out. They put a piece of equipment in there, suck all the air out because there's no air in space. And then they leave it, and they drop the temperature with the liquid nitrogen down to 300 degrees below zero. Because when you're in the backside away from the sun, out in space, even, even in the view of the sun, it's 300 degrees or close to it below zero. So the equipment has to be tested. Can it take this? And then after three weeks of, you know, of 300 degrees below zero, they turn off the liquid nitrogen, suck that out, and then they put their heaters on, their flaming heaters, and raise the temperature in there to 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Why? Because when the space equipment comes down, the shuttle, it's going to go through the atmosphere burn, and that gets up to less than, but almost, to 2,500 degrees. So, you know, that's important. In fact, in 2003... Um, Rick Husband and the crew of the uh, Columbia Space Shuttle perished because when that space shuttle took off, it's the one after Christiane McCollum in 83, I think, 87, 86, I got it, okay, uh, is that a piece of foam on the rocket booster fell off, and that foam isn't like your styrofoam cup, heavy-duty foam fell off of a, a portion and hit against the wing of the shuttle. And by the way, they knew that while it was in space. And by the way, they were making decisions, and some guys said, well, there's nothing we could do if something bad happened anyway. But uh, the truth was, it came out later through reports, is they could have, they actually had another space shuttle getting ready to go soon, and they could have got it sooner and kept them up there longer and checked it out, did a spacewalk and looked at it, and they could have saved these people. And I'm not ranking on them. I'm just saying uh, that didn't happen. What happened is they said, well, there's not really nothing we can do. And it could have been, again, that pressure. Pressure to get the job done because of the money and the integrity of the program. But you see, the integrity of the upright will guide them. The right thing is the right thing, no matter the outcome the circumstance. So in they come under Commander Rick Husband, a, a, a Christian, very strong Christian. And, the, and because the wing had been damaged, a portion was open. And then, of course, the heat came in and the wind came in and the wing broke apart. And, uh, and then it tw twisted, broke, exploded, burned, and they all died. It's interesting, Rick, husband, um, they all leave a little, they leave, leave notes, books uh, to, of things they want to leave when they go, knowing they may not come back. I mean, if you go out into space on a rocket, you know it's possible you're not coming home. And he wrote, um, he was very secure as a witness to the Lord. His note to his pastor said, tell them about Jesus. He's real to me. You see, our shield of faith quenches all those fiery darts. It's our faith 
that is more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried in the fire. And though I would rather have my faith just be exhibited as glorious and people say, whoa, you're a man of faith, just because. (laughs) Because that sounds easy and makes me feel good. My faith has to be tested for me. It has to be proven to me. Because I can tell people all day how real Jesus is to me. But if a hard time comes and I fold up my tents, all those words mean nothing. But it's when the hard times come and I say, though he slay me, yet will I serve him as Job did. Imperfectly, his, his, his witness in that time was imperfect, but better than just about anybody you know. The true and faithful witness is Jesus Christ. So our faith is tested. Abraham's faith was tested. And of course, Abraham's faith would have to be tested to the highest degree, to the picture in full color, giant wall mural on, a, on the wall of China <laughs> size to say to all mankind, this is my beloved son. He did what Abraham didn't have to. Jehovah Jireh, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. And we have seen that Jesus Christ took the greatest test so that mine is a sub-test, a lesser test. And for this, I'm so thankful. And for this, we turn our eyes upon Jesus. Father, before Jacob and Christina come to lead a, a final song, we just want to say thank you for the story of Abraham. Thank you for the truth of Abraham. Thank you for the life of Abraham. And we know he's just a man. He had faults and flaws. But you used his faith and his courage to show us what love really is. And none of us has to wonder if we are loved because you so loved us you gave your only begotten son. He passed the test on the Mount of Temptation He passed the test on the Mount of Transfiguration instead of just leaving. And he passed the test on the Mount of Calvary. And we have seen that you are truly the Savior who loves us and gave yourself for us. May we follow you. May we decide that you're enough for whatever we need. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do it like about like that. Like you. All right. Do you guys want to stand with us for this last song?
my sacrifice. You're my sacrifice of greatest price. Still more awesome than I know. You're my coming king. You're my everything. Still more awesome than I know. I know that you is more than enough for. Sure, before no, 